Good morning. Welcome to The Briefing. It is Monday the 25th of May. And later on the show, how has the sex industry been impacted by the pandemic? We'll find out why the industry is calling for a rethink on step three of the lockdown wineback. Before we get to that, let's talk through the big stories of the day. Hello, Annika Smethurst. Bit of interesting news on the Trans-Tasman bubble. Yeah, Tom, it looks like tourists in New South Wales and Victoria could head to New Zealand before they actually are able to cross the border into Queensland. Yeah, the Sunshine State's been the firmest about keeping its border ban in place, potentially till September. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison's told the nine newspapers that the trans-Tasman bubble could go ahead, even if some Australian states are still shut. Yeah, but it looks like Clive Palmer isn't happy with that. He's taking the fight to compel Western Australia to open its borders to the High Court, where he's announced he'll lodge documents today. He's not the only one unhappy about this. While he can't take business trips there, Pauline Hanson has also threatened to do the same thing to the Queensland government. This fight over the state borders seems to be building and building, and I saw some commentary in the papers over the weekend that the Queensland government are doing this for political reasons ahead of their state election. What do you make of that? Look, it makes sense to try and keep the borders shut if that's something that you think is a vote winner. But at the end of the day, Victoria and New South Wales have so many more cases. So I can see why Anastasia Palaszczuk isn't keen to get those people rushing back in there, if you, especially if you're trying to keep your health system in check. But how would it be a vote winner? I mean, people in Queensland would be really wanting to get their businesses up and running, wouldn't they? I think they want to get their businesses up and running to Queenslanders. I think the risk of letting other people in, we know a lot of retirees like to head to Queensland when it gets colder in the southern states, and all of a sudden you could be dealing with an influx and um, affecting your healthcare system, which would be really bad in an election year. Did you hear about the $60 billion bungle of the JobKeeper program? On Friday, we learned about the biggest budget blunder in Australian history. In some ways, it's a good mistake. It means we're going to be in $60 billion less debt than we thought we would be. Instead of 6.5 million people on JobKeeper, there's 3.5. Here's Scott Morrison trying to own the mistake. Ultimately, I have to take responsibilities for those things. So sure, the estimate was overstated. Yeah, that's a little bit of an underestimation there by Scott Morrison. Uh, Look, it was out by $60 billion. The original estimate was JobKeeper was going to cost $130 billion. Now that's about $70 billion. All right, this is such a fascinating one, Anna. Can you explain what actually happened here? Look, there seems to be two reasons why this is out, and they were added as a check and balance to each other. And, of course, when they were both out, it didn't work. There's about 1,000 businesses that filled out a form wrong instead of saying they had one employee, they said they had 1500 which was actually the amount of money they were after. So that put out the amount of money we thought we were going to have to pay. And at the other end, Treasury were asked to estimate a worst-case scenario, which included a lot of more sectors being shut down, like mining and construction. So they really didn't act as a check and balance against each other. And here we are, we're out by billions. I think what perplexed a lot of people here was that they predicted it would cost $130 billion and then it looked like it was going to cost that much. So the number that was apparently calculated wrong by these businesses filling in their forms incorrectly ended up getting really close to what they originally estimated. How did that happen? Yeah, so that's about the peak. Treasury were asked to estimate this worst case scenario, which really looked at about 
15,000 cases at the peak. We've had nowhere near that. So it really was a bit of uh, a coincidence that both these numbers were close enough. They wouldn't have been the exact amount, but they would have acted as a check against each other. And of course, that wasn't picked up until Thursday night when the ATO had to admit this mistake to the government. Yeah. So a lot of people are blaming the government, but is it actually the department? It is, but at the end of the day, ministers are responsible for their department. No one's really blaming Josh Frydenberg here, but you wouldn't want to have another mistake of that magnitude on the books. And so ultimately it's good news because, A, not as many people needed the support as we thought um, within the categories of people that can actually get it. And also, it's going to cost us $60 billion less, so less debt to repay in the future. It hasn't stopped people calling for the money to be spent on people that perhaps haven't benefited from it, whether they work in the arts or perhaps going out to more casuals. Look, I don't think the government will go that way, though. There is a bit of talk that they might help out industries who have been really hard hit, and that would be definitely the tourism industry at the top of their list, but I don't think they're going to be expanding this program too much. Well, yeah, it's such a tricky one for the government because there are was we have to draw the line somewhere. And at that point, they were talking about $130 billion. So the line that they were supposedly having to draw has shifted dramatically. So arguments around who gets it, but also how long it lasts, whether they really do cut it off at the end of September. Yeah, I think they're going to be in a bit of a sticky situation with that one because they have said that was the line. So look, there is more cash out there to spend, but the argument the government's making is this isn't an endless pot. It was money we thought we'd have to borrow. Now we don't have to borrow, but they might borrow a little bit, maybe not the whole chunk. Now, even a few weeks ago, this would have sounded like a a pipe dream, but the AFL and NRL have both got plans now to get live crowds back into games. Yeah, it looks like the NRL will come first. The competition returns on Thursday, and the head of the Australian Rugby League Commission, Peter Volandis, has revealed a pretty ambitious plan to get paying club members back into stadiums within weeks, as early as July 1, apparently. Yeah, he's been pretty bold, Peter Volandis, through this whole crisis. He's now saying uh, something like... Sydney's ANZ Stadium could host 20,000 fans, even with proper social distancing measures in place. And in the AFL now, it's considering separated seating, staggered entry and exits and temperature screening to get about 30,000 fans back into stadiums before the October 24 grand final. Yeah, it's going to be so interesting to see how they push ahead with this. Um, 30,000 is obviously a lot less than 100,000, which is normally at the grand final. We're going to get a better idea of what the AFL season will look like when it announces its revised fixtures today. Now, Annika, I'm not a huge rugby league fan, but this time around in this whole pandemic situation and just watching the narrative unfold of the NRL... I'm super excited for Thursday's game. Yeah, I never thought I'd say that either, Tom. I'm AFL through and through, but can't wait to see any footy back on the telly. Now, the US ambassador in Canberra has stepped back from a strong warning from the US government about Victoria and their relationship with China. Here's what the US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, originally said. I don't know the nature of those projects precisely, but to the extent they have an adverse impact on our ability to protect telecommunications from our private citizens or security networks for our defence and intelligence communities, we will simply disconnect. We will simply separate. We're going to preserve trusted networks. So that was the US Secretary. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo talking about the fact Victoria has signed up to China's Belt and Roads program. 
But that agreement is a memorandum of understanding and doesn't include any specific telecommunications projects at this stage. The US Ambassador to Australia later walked back that warning, saying Pompeo had just been addressing the hypothetical and that the plan Victoria signed up to won't actually hurt security between the Five Eyes nations because China won't be building any telecommunications technologies within that state. So as part of this big program, the Belt and Roads program, Beijing is lending money to more than 100 countries around the globe to build infrastructure with the aim of improving economic and trade ties. And the broader concern here is that it'll give them a worrying amount of power over other countries. And of course, in the context of the spat over the investigation into the coronavirus, there's a lot of concern about our relationship with China. All right, Annika, we'll catch you on tomorrow's briefing. It's time to bring Jan Fran into the studio. It's hard to imagine a work practice any more socially non-distant than sex work. Right, Jan? That is very right, yes. Uh, So how has that industry been impacted during this pandemic? It astounds me. We were called to this brothel because the street was that busy at one stage, it became a traffic jam. That is absolutely insane. So that brothel obviously shouldn't have been operating and it was duly fined. But should it be allowed to reopen under stage three of the COVID rollback plan? Well, that's the question. Now, this all begins in March uh, when the PM announced that public venues, and this includes brothels, strip clubs, massage parlours, that they would close. And like any industry that is forced to shut its doors, the sex industry took a real financial hit. Now, I should say here that while some workers might be eligible for JobSeeker and JobKeeper, Many aren't. Now, that's either because they're on a temporary visa or because they just don't want to disclose what it is that they do because they're concerned about privacy. Yeah, so it's a very unique situation facing this particular industry. And to find out to what extent the sex industry has been affected by COVID-19, we've had an in-depth chat with Jules Kim, who's a sex worker herself and also the CEO of the sex worker advocacy group, the Scarlet Alliance. She told us that their industry has been smashed. The impact of the travel restrictions, business closures, and then obviously the distancing requirements as well as the restrictions and directions have resulted in an unprecedented loss of work and income for sex workers. So like most Australians, um, sex workers have been facing a range of challenges. It has had a really devastating impact and unfortunately for many sex workers, they are actually falling through the gaps of government support packages. So how is business operating exactly? I mean, has has all the physical sex stopped and things have moved online? Can you give us an overview of how it's operating currently? Unfortunately, the restrictions, sex work is um, uh, regulated by a very complex matrix of laws. So in each state and territory, there are different laws that uh, regulate um, not just sex work, but also the different forms of sex work. So there's different laws for escort versus private versus street-based sex work versus um, brothel work. It is a really incredibly complex and difficult um, field to navigate. Some states have uh, prohibited all forms of sex work, um, including advertising, whereas other states allow certain forms of sex work to continue, such as um, online or non-contact forms of sex work. Right, but safe to say all all physical kinds of sex work is completely off the table at the moment. For the most part, it is um, incredibly difficult um, because of the restrictions and we have seen active um, targeting by the police and fines. I will note, though, that um, 
even before the restrictions were put in place, that um, sex workers adapted their work practices and, and were very proactive in their approach to dealing with coronavirus. Jules, when you say for the most part you haven't been able to do physical contact work, does that mean it is still happening in in some ways or some places? Because it's hard to imagine how you could do that and socially distance. Well, that's right. It's it's um well, this is like where people have taken other forms of of work. You know, I think the essential issue here is the fact that it, for a, a lot of sex workers that they are in an incredibly uh, difficult situation. For those who, who were able to adapt and able to move to online non-contact services, many sex workers have done so. Um, it is a very crowded market. Um, other sex workers that were able to access Job Seeker and Job Keeper were able to do that. But um, unfortunately, some sex workers um, aren't able to access available government supports and that places them in a very difficult um, situation whether basically themselves or their dependents are able to survive and stay housed and fed or um, having to take that risk and continue working. So interesting there, Jan, to hear how the industry's moving forward. Obviously, any physical contact is essentially illegal, even though it sounds like some people are still doing it, but that has led to a number of fines. It has. Now, fines were introduced in late March for individuals and businesses flouting social distancing laws. But sex workers were among the first people in the country to cop a fine under these new laws. Now, since then, there have been fines in the thousands of dollars issued to brothel owners, individual sex workers and clients, and they've been issued in different parts of the country. Like the Geelong brothel, for example, was fined almost $10,000. Yeah, exactly. Um, So we asked Jules how the industry actually sees those fines. Look, I think there's a long history of um, the ineffectiveness of targeting and fining in terms of public health responses. Um, And I think, unfortunately, in terms of the response to COVID, I think a lot of those lessons have gone out the window. But um, I think that there is plenty of evidence in terms of, you know, access to services, public public health responses and access to testing that um, it is ineffective to essentially penalise and fine people um, and police a health response. It is um, incredibly unfortunate that it's impacted on individual sex workers who were essentially working because they really um, were in a situation where they had no other available supports. But I think there'd be a lot of people in situations where they're really financially desperate in these times, but they're still adhering to social distancing guidelines. I imagine that the risk of transmitting COVID-19 in a brothel if you're having sex is quite high. So isn't it fair to find a brothel that is taking in lots of customers after these social distancing measures came in, like the, the case in Geelong? Yeah, but it's not, I mean, it's you, you're speaking to a particular case and there are um, a number of other instances where um, individual sex workers have been targeted through their, um, se- their advertising. Also, we've had um, reports of um, police checking in on known sex workers who were actually just in their home with their partner or, or their kids and um, actually just checking to make sure that they weren't working. You wonder at the um, the effectiveness or, you know, the use of resources in this way. 
to actually target on what is essentially, for the most part, uh, recognised as a legitimate profession. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, even though we are in Australia, for the most part, recognised as, as a legitimate profession, it is still subject to a lot of public misconception and a lot of stigma and discrimination, particularly in the current situation. I think that this is when um, evidence of, of that stigma and discrimination becomes incredibly enhanced and evidence of those equalities become very present. Do you think that the moral or religious views of our politicians might be playing into their decision-making around this industry? Well, I can say it, it is incredibly disappointing um, to see the approach that was outlined in the three-step plan. I'll note that uh, sex workers in New Zealand actually went back to work last Thursday at stage two of their plan, and, and New Zealand is also, for the most part, decriminalised. It's interesting to hear there, Jan, that New Zealand have put their sex workers back to work You have to wonder why we're taking a different approach here in Australia and what's guiding our government's thinking. Because even under step three of the framework for restarting the COVID-safe economy, brothels and strip clubs will still have to stay closed, even though nightclubs, casinos, saunas and bathhouses will be allowed to open. There's also not a clear indication of when brothels will reopen. Uh, All we know at this point is that even after step three of us re-emerging from this lockdown, they'll stay closed. That's all we know. And Jules Kim, understandably, has some pretty strong thoughts about that. You can't really imagine a tattooist or a um, petition able to maintain social distancing in their services either, yet they are also committed to return at various stages. Um, There's a range of other services that require person-to-person contact. Do you think you'll be the last group of workers in the country that can't go back to the workplace? Well, yeah. I mean, we're the only industry that's required to remain closed in the three-step plan, the only industry. There is actually no other industry that is actually required to remain closed at that point in time. It is talking about essentially a return back to normal, in inverted commas, We have fought long and hard for progressive legislation in regards to sex work and we would hate for this to be a reason to wind back those enabling legal frameworks. Jules, uh, just before we let you go, if if you had the Prime Minister and all the state premiers in front of you right now, what is your one message to them? What would you call for them to do? I think it it, it is, you know, sex workers have um, demonstrated through a long track record of compliance and responsiveness that we are able to adapt our work practices to return to work like other Australians. It is really um, the case that sex workers are keen to return to work and I think um, this is absolutely possible for that to happen and we would um, urge the government to uh, remove the restrictions of brothels and strip clubs to remain closed in their three-step plan. So that was Jules Kim, CEO of the Scarlet Alliance, with a strong call for the government to rethink step three and allow brothels and strip clubs to reopen. You've got to wonder how it could work, though. I guess because massages are already allowed, there could be a way to do it. I guess contract tracing would be really important. Yeah, and how do you contract trace in an industry that runs on discretion, Mm. where actually you don't want anybody to know the person that you've been in contact with, and I imagine neither do they. So how how would you even do that? And would you have to rub hand sanitizer over your whole body? Oh, I hope not, because that would sting. Ouch. In a lot of areas.
So you heard Jules Kim there, the CEO of the Scarlet Alliance, calling for the government to include brothels in step three of their wind back of the lockdowns. So we've actually put that request to the Health Minister, Greg Hunt, and here's what his office has said in response to that. The spokesperson said entertainment venues which would be unable to guarantee social distancing requirements because of the activities which are inherent in their operations, such as adult entertainment venues and brothels, are recommended to remain closed until at least after step three of the easing restrictions, adding that the states and territories have agreed to the three-step plan, however they remain able to determine restrictions in their own jurisdictions. So essentially saying The federal government don't plan to change that, but the state governments could if they really wanted to. So no movement on that at this stage. That is it for today's podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to The Briefing. Uh, Make sure you subscribe via your podcast app and follow us on Instagram at The Briefing Podcast. Hope you have a beautiful Monday. A Podcast One production.